You're listening to the Central City Assembly podcast. We're dedicated to sharing content that magnifies and multiplies Jesus for the good of our city and helps you grow in your love for Jesus. So enjoy this episode and may you be filled with the love of God the Father. Good morning, church family. I'm so happy to see all of you this morning. If this is your first time here, my name is Pastor Kai, and we just want to thank you for joining us and um, being a part of our church family this morning. Make yourselves at home. Uh, we've got coffee in the back. Kiefer's modeling how to, how to do that. Um, so feel free. Just get up and grab some coffee. But um, hey, can we start today with some Bible trivia? Okay, not so much trivia about what's in the Bible, like what we read in the Bible, but trivia about the Bible itself. How about that? Sound fun? Okay, let's do it. Um, first question, what does the Bible mean? The word Bible mean? Anybody know? Go ahead. Book. Yes, that's right. So when we read the Bible, we're reading the book. Um, an even older meaning of the word is scroll or papyrus. So you can kind of see how the word evolved. Um, question number two, how many languages was the Bible originally written in? Three, that's right. Can you name what they were? Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. I heard them all. That's right. Good job. Smarty pants. All right, how about this one? How many books are there in the traditional Protestant Bible? 66. How many in the Old Testament? 39, how many in the new? 27. Anybody know how many in the Catholic Bible? 73, 73. How about the Orthodox Bibles? They have between 79 and 86. I don't even know where the other ones are. That's crazy. Um, okay, question four. How many chapters in the Bible? Any guesses? 1,000, okay. Yeah, 3,000? Uh, 1,189 chapters. Uh, anybody know the longest and shortest chapters? 119 is the, that's right, you got it. Yeah, both in the Psalms. Well done. Um, okay, how about this question, number five. How many Bibles per year are sold and donated all together? Millions, yeah. 100 million per year. 20 million a year just in the U.S. alone. Um, how about this one? What century the oldest Bible date back to? What'd you say? 14th century? Fourth century. Fourth century. So 300 BC or uh, AD, I'm sorry. Um, that's the oldest Bible that we have. You can actually go online. It's uh, held in the Vatican, but it's in Greek, the whole thing. And you can actually see it and it's handwritten. It's amazing. Fourth century BC. Um, yeah, fourth century. Uh, okay, last one. What year was the first Bible printed on the printing press? The whole Bible. The whole Bible. Yeah, you can look on the back right there. Yeah, Kiefer got it. 1557. How'd you know that, Kiefer? <laughs> 15, 1557. It was the Geneva Bible. Okay. 
Um, here's some other interesting facts about the Bible. Okay, there is a, uh, a rare copy of the Bible that was in circulation for a while called the Sinner's Bible. Um, because instead of saying thou shall not commit adultery, it said thou shall commit adultery. There's actually a few still in circulation right now, probably worth some money. Um, and probably somebody using that be like, well, it says right there, I can... Um, even though the Bible says thou shalt not steal, the Bible is the most stolen book in the world. Uh, the Bible in its entirety has been translated into almost 700 languages, um, and parts of the Bible have been translated into over 3,000 languages. Uh, the most expensive book in the world is a Bible that sold for $14 million dollars. Um, I think it's safe to say that there's no other book, uh, no other book has had more influence on culture, language, art, music, and literature than the Bible. Um, some other facts, John Wycliffe, uh, if you know who that is, he produced the first translation of the English Bible from the Latin Vulgate. Maybe you didn't know this though. After he died, uh, the Catholic Church authorities exhumed his body and burned his corpse as punishment for his work. How about this? Similarly, William Tyndall, where we get the Tyndall House Publishing, William Tyndall produced the first printed English New Testament. He was later burned at the stake by the Catholic Church for doing this. Uh, South Koreans, they will parachute or drop balloons with Bibles attached to them into North Korea. And North Korean authorities, they regularly shoot down these balloons and these parachutes, and it's illegal, punishable by death for North Korean citizens to retrieve one of these parachute Bibles, but many risk death to get their hands on them anyways. Uh, China produces the most Bibles in the world but only for export purposes. A possession of a Bible is classified by outside sources as highly restricted or even illegal. Uh, China recently banned online sales of the Bible within the country, and they're even working on their own translation uh, to inject their pro-communist ideology into it. Um, Based on just these facts I've shared with you this morning about the Bible, it's no doubt that it's one of the most intriguing and most influential books in history. Um, it's read by more people than any other book. It's sold more than any other book. I mean, it's probably safe to say that more people died for and because of this book more than any other book. And some might say that that. It is for all of these reasons that we must continue to preserve the Bible, while others might use the exact same reasoning to say the Bible is actually evil and causes more harm than good. I mean, when it comes to faith deconstruction, the Bible and all of its complexities and difficulties and questions around it, it's one of the big reasons that people choose to deconstruct and then reconstruct without the Bible or to deconvert altogether. Right, there's no doubt about it. The Bible is complex and difficult and causes many people to raise their eyebrows and ask questions. If you've read it, you've probably been there before. But is this reason enough to disregard it as useless and irrelevant for faith today? While some will and do say yes, 
um, I hope to encourage you today that the Bible, Scripture, is still worth holding on to. Scripture is still a reliable foundation to stand upon for having and strengthening our faith in God. Um, and we are ultimately better off with the Bible than without it. And so the title of today's message is Standing on Scripture. All right, can we pray again and just ask God to lead us and guide our thoughts this morning? God, we, we want you. We want everything that you have for us. We want to know who you are. We want to know what you think about us. And God, we know, we believe that you can give us that, that divine revelation, but we also know that you've given us scripture to know who you are, to make sense of who you are. And so God, we pray that you would lead us and guide us in your truth, your scripture this morning. Help us to see why your book is foundational for our faith. Help us to see why it's still useful for us to hold on to, even with all of its complexities. God, we trust you. And say, would you lead and guide us this morning? We say these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. All right. Um, so before we jump into the details about the Bible, about Scripture, um, I, I first want to do a, a quick review from our previous two weeks. All right. Um, we're in the middle of our series called Reconstruct uh, because the world, not just the church, is going through a process of deconstruction. Uh, political, cultural, social ideas are being deconstructed all over the place. Right? And part of this world deconstruction is having an influence on the church because the world is challenging many of our beliefs and views to the point of even calling some of them evil and just wrong. And so many in the church right now are being challenged by this. And they are deconstructing their faith. Uh, last week, I said the, gave the definition of faith deconstruction. And we have that again if you want to throw that up, Luke. Um, but faith deconstruction is taking inventory of the pieces of your faith and asking really good questions about them. All right, like, why do I still have these pieces? Are they still necessary and useful? Are they true and right? Do they have authority in my life? Do they draw me closer to God and help me fulfill his purposes for my life? This is our working definition of faith deconstruction. And we concluded that faith deconstruction, according to this definition, is not bad. But it's something that every Christian should go through on more than one occasion so that they can mature, grow, and strengthen their faith. Right? So our concern as church should not be with deconstruction. Okay? Uh, we also concluded that faith deconstruction to, should lead to reconstruction. Because as I've said time and time again, um, deconstruction without reconstruction is just destruction. And if you deconstruct your faith until there is nothing left to stand on and you stay there, then what do you have to guide you through this life? Right, the psalmist even says in Psalm chapter 11, verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Right, we need foundations. Amen. We need beliefs and values to guide us through this life. And so, reconstruction is necessary and important. So our concern shouldn't be with deconstruction, and it shouldn't be with reconstruction. Our concern should be with how. How Christians 
professed followers of Jesus reconstruct their faith. Our concern should be with what people are leaning on and using as their foundation to reconstruct their faith in God. Because many are, are going to the world, which I gave a definition of what I mean by the world uh, last week, but they're going to the world to reconstruct their faith in God, which makes no sense when you really think about it. It makes no sense to go to the world, which is opposed to God, to grow your faith in God. I'm going to add this as well about faith. Um, faith is not something that comes from within yourself. You can't create faith in yourself. You can't muster up faith by your own strength and power and understanding. No, faith is something that is given to you from outside of yourself. It's given to you by God. Faith as a gift from God is mentioned in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, and Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 also tells us that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Right, so faith doesn't come from human conjuring and human understanding. Right, so it makes no sense to go to the world or human understanding to strengthen our faith. Faith only comes from outside of us. It comes from God. We're on the same page right now? All right, furthermore, Scripture tells us that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So faith can come from hearing someone else share the truth and words of Jesus. But what other resource can we also turn to to hear or read the words of Jesus? The Bible, right? Scripture. So if we want to reconstruct and strengthen our faith, then we must turn to God. Right? We must ask God to strengthen our faith. And we see examples of this throughout Scripture. But we must also turn to God's word, the scriptures. And so again, it makes no sense to stand on the world as our foundation for faith. We can only stand on scripture as our foundation for faith. Uh, the Frenchman Blaise Pascal um, was a child prodigy in the area of math. Uh, he was a world-renowned mathematician, physicist, inventor, uh, philosopher, writer, and theologian. I think there's a measurement, uh, the Pascal, I don't remember what it is, but there's a measurement based off of his name. And he said this, I love this quote. He said, thus, without the scripture, which has Jesus Christ alone for its object, we know nothing and see only darkness and confusion in the nature of God and in our own nature. I love that quote. Because yes, like I said, we can know that there is a powerful and mighty God through nature, through, through the sciences. We'll get to that in another message, right? Or through miraculous and divine experience. But our understanding of that experience and of God's nature comes from Scripture and Scripture alone. Right? We can only stand on Scripture as our foundation for faith. Right? But right now, so many people struggle with scripture, right? It's complicated to understand lots of the time, right? Not only that, but, but critics and cynics of the Bible say that, oh, it's not historical. 
It's not based on evidence. It, it contradicts itself. I mean, the Old Testament, have you read it? It's full of violence and horrible things. Right? It's just a bunch of made-up stories. So how can we trust it? How can we stand on it as reliable and a steady foundation? And those are all valid questions. And those are questions I want to try to address this morning, if that's okay with you. Okay? Um, again, this is a note-taking message. So get your notes out. Take pictures of the slides as we go. Um, but first, we need to clarify what we mean by that word reliable. Uh, another word for reliable is trustworthy. When we say the, the Bible is trustworthy, reliable, what does that mean? Reliable for what? And it's important to answer these questions. Well, to understand that, we need to understand the purpose of Scripture. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, they tell us that Scripture is intended to lead all people to salvation in Jesus. And it's meant to lead believers to maturity in faith. Okay, And I've known many people who were atheists, or they knew nothing or very little about Jesus, but when they started reading the scriptures, it suddenly came alive to them, and they started to believe. Right? Scripture led them to salvation. I, I also know people whose lives were a mess, but when they started reading scripture and doing what it says, things got better for them. They matured in their living and thinking. Right? Scripture led them to maturity and faith. And so that, that is, is part of the purpose of Scripture. Okay, but Scripture isn't primarily a rule book with instructions on how to live, although it does have some of that. Scripture isn't primarily a history book, but it does have some history. Scripture isn't primarily a book used to answer life's biggest questions even, although it does provide answers. No, the Bible is primarily a storybook. It's a storybook about God. Right? It's mostly narrative that is meant to help us know who God is, what he's done, what he says about us, and how we should live. And so the primary purpose of Scripture isn't to know history, isn't to know rules, isn't to find answers. It's to know God primarily. So when we talk about Scripture being reliable, that's what we mean. Right? It is reliable and trustworthy for helping us know who God is, what he's done, what he says about us, and how we should live. And when you think about it, aren't those really the biggest things that all of humanity wants to understand, right? More and more people uh, in all kinds of walks of life are becoming aware of the fact that, that someone or something bigger than us and outside of us is responsible for this universe that we live in. That's becoming a more popular idea right now. Well, the Bible helps us understand who that someone is. Everyone right now is trying to figure out who they are and what they're supposed to do with their lives. The Bible helps us understand that too, right? Scripture is reliable and trustworthy to fulfill its purpose of leading people to salvation and leading believers to maturity and faith and to know who God is, what he's done, what he says about us and how we should live. Now, why is it important for us to clarify what we mean by reliable? 
and what scripture is reliable for. Because sometimes people try to use the Bible for things that it was not primarily meant to be used for. Right? If we just look at the Bible as a rule book to organize our lives, then we miss the entire point of it. Right? That was the problem the Israelites and the, the Pharisees and Sadducees of Jesus' time ran into. Right? The law and the scriptures were just about rules, and they missed the point about relationship with God and knowing who he is. And we risk running into the same problem if we approach the Bible that way. Right? If we just look at the Bible as an encyclopedia or a book of answers, we're going to be very disappointed because the Bible doesn't have answers to everything. Okay, what does the Bible say about dating? What does the Bible say about whether or not you should take a certain vaccine? What does the Bible say about who you should vote for in the next election? Now listen, don't get me wrong. I believe we can use the Bible to help guide us in those areas, but it doesn't give us clear answers because that's not the primary purpose of the scriptures. I know I'm challenging some of your views on the scriptures right now, but bear with me, okay? I, I think of it this way. Um, some tools are made for very specific purposes. Ask Kiefer, our resident mechanic, right? Some tools are made for very specific purposes. I mean, it doesn't mean that you can't, they can't be used for other things. And chances are you could still get the job done, but you're going to be incredibly frustrated the whole time trying to use that tool because that's not its intended purpose. Um, like when I used a crescent wrench and a hammer to change the starter in one of our old cars. It worked. I got the job done. I was incredibly frustrated the entire time because you don't generally use a hammer and a crescent wrench to change a starter in a car. Right? The primary purpose and use of scripture is not for history or rules or like an encyclopedia of answers although it does have all of those things, the primary purpose is to lead people to salvation and believers to maturity in faith and to know who God is, what he's done, what he says about us, and how we should live. We're all on the same page still? Haven't lost anybody? Okay. So scripture is reliable and trustworthy. But we're just saying that, right? How do we know that scripture is reliable and trustworthy? Well, first and foremost, um, Scripture says that Scripture is true and trustworthy. Okay, there, there are several verses in the Old Testament and New Testament that attest to the truth of Scripture and God's words. For example, John 17, 17, Psalm 19, verse 7, Psalm 119, verse 160, Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. All right, but savvy thinkers and logicians will quickly say, I didn't say magicians, I said logicians, uh, will quickly say, hey, that's a circular argument, Pastor Kai. Right? Saying scripture is true is like a person saying, hey, I'm trustworthy, so you should trust me. Not many people fly with that, do they? Right, that's a circular argument. Um, and I don't actually have a problem with that because a perfect being like God can stand up to a circular argument and prove that it's trustworthy every single time. So I don't have a problem with that. But if you're not okay with that, what are some other things that we can point to, to the trustworthiness of Scripture? And now just to, to clarify or, or uh, prepare you, like I just said, I'm not going to be arguing Scripture 
with scripture for the rest of our time here. We'll get back to scripture, but for the rest of this chunk, I'm just going to give you some things that the world is starting to discover, okay? Um, so how about this? The historicity of scripture. Right? How do we know that, that the Bible is reliable? Well, what about the historicity of scripture? Many skeptics uh, talk about how the Bible isn't really historical. But historians and scholars look at the Bible and say that it is one of the most trusted documents in antiquity. Right? They have certain tools and standards they use to decide if an ancient document is reliable. And one of those tools is quantity. Everybody say quantity. Right? How many copies of an ancient document do we have to compare and contrast? And when you look at other ancient documents from around the same time as the New Testament, like Aristotle's Poetics, uh, Caesar's Gallic Wars, um, these books that many historians and scholars look at and they say these are absolutely true and trustworthy. We only have about five copies of those. Five copies, right, that we can compare and contrast. Not only do historians look at quantity, but they also look at time. Everybody say time, right? How much time has passed since the events of history happened and when the document recording the history was written? And when we look at Aristotle's or Caesar's writings, they were written 500 to 1400 years after the events happened. And historians totally trust them. Okay. But when we look at the New Testament, they were written between 30 and 90 years after the events happened. So much closer in time. And we have about 25,000 manuscripts, way more than any other ancient document. And we can compare and contrast those and see there's actually very little difference between all of them. Right, they were accurately replicated from the originals. And so historians see New Testament scriptures as reliable and trustworthy in that one sense. All right, what else? Uh, skeptics will also point to the contradictions that can be found in the Bible. Just do a search for contradictions in the Bible, and you'll probably land upon some Reddit page full of people saying, well, what about this contradiction? What about that one? Well, the, the Bible, though, isn't really full of contradictions, right? Sometimes there's a way of reading two seemingly contradictory passages that is really just a misunderstanding, that we don't understand the original language and things like that, right? Some of the Gospels or, or the Bible story isn't written like a chronological or sequential biography. Some of the Gospels share different things from different aspects and not even in order. And you have to understand how to read narrative. Uh, for example, some people point out that in one gospel, it says that there was one angel at the resurrection tomb of Jesus. And then in another gospel, it says that there were two. Well, that's a contradiction. The Bible can't be trusted anymore. Just throw it out. Right? But the reality is that one gospel is telling you how many angels were there, two. And the other gospel is simply saying how many spoke, one. One spoke. But that doesn't mean there weren't two angels. Right? It just, it's just honing in on a different aspect of the story. Right? Or, or people, other people will point out the death of Judas. One gospel says that he hung himself. And another says that his guts spilled out all over this field. 
Right? And that's not really a contradiction, though. The reality is he did hang himself, and after some time, maybe he was found or, or, and cut down, or maybe the rope snapped and, and it just broke, and he fell, and in that process, his gut spilled out over this field. Right? These contradictions, which aren't really contradictions, I don't think are worth throwing the entire Bible out because of. Historians and scholars aren't bothered by these um, narrative differences either. All right, furthermore, the Bible makes many historical and archaeological claims, right, that, that people refute and say, well, that never happened because there's no evidence of that in history or in archaeology. And consistently and continually, time and time again, the claims made in the Bible are being proved as true. For example, for a long time, people didn't believe that King David was a real person. They thought he was made up. They didn't believe uh, that there was any archaeological evidence for this King David. If he was real, we would see it. There was no evidence of the city of King David like we read in the Old Testament. The Bible must not be true. But now archaeology has proven that King David was real and did have a city because there are clear inscriptions on excavated ancient structures that talk about this King David and the city of David. Or people, they used to refute the book of John uh, because in the book of John, it talks about the miracle at the Siloam pool where Jesus healed a blind man. And this pool had a very special shape with very specific features. And historians were like, there was never such structure like that in ancient times. Right? There were no pools that looked like that. We don't see that in archaeology. And so a bunch of people just got rid of their Bibles. And so we can't believe this anymore. But in 2004, the Siloam pool was discovered and matched the description mentioned in John. And so... An entire generation walked away from the Bible because of this one detail when all it took was a little more digging. And this kind of discovery has happened time and time again. And I'm sure there's still more to be found that will continue to prove the historicity of the Bible. In fact, I was scrolling on my phone this morning and there are papers being released right now of a most recent discovery of this uh, lead tablet that has Hebrew writing on it. And they've dated it back to 1500 B.C. Now, the date of when the Bible was written and when these certain things in the Old Testament happened, it's been contested. Or they've said, actually, it was probably more like 600 B.C. And a bunch of people were just making this up. We have a new document that was written in Hebrew and mentions the name of God, Yahweh, that dates back to the 1500 BC that proves there was a people group who spoke Hebrew and believed in Yahweh. That's incredible. Um, in about, I think, 10 minutes, you're going to receive a text message from me um, with a link to that article that just discovered it, okay? And so go and read it. It's incredible. It's amazing, all right? Um, but most... Honest scholars and historians, they're going to tell you that um, it's not the history that they question. Uh, they don't question whether or not Jesus was real, whether or not the disciples and, and other people and places were real. They don't even question the archaeology. 
No, they question if Jesus really said the things that he said and did the things that he did and if he was really the person he and his disciples said that he was. How do you give an answer for that, right? And what skeptics will say is that everything about Jesus' words and actions in the gospel, they're just fan fiction set in real historical settings with real historical people. Okay, but, but what makes the Bible so compelling and points to its trustworthiness is that there are so many counterproductive things that are left in the Bible that if they were trying to uh, spread this myth or legend, they would have just left them out to make the story and the hero of the story sound so much better. Right? Like when people came to Jesus and said, do you know when you're coming back? And Jesus was like, no, I don't know when I'm coming back. And they said, well, aren't you the son of God, all-knowing? Yes, I am God. So when are you coming back? I don't know. Right? That is counterproductive. Right? The gospel writers should have taken that out because it makes it look like the hero of the story doesn't know stuff. Right? But the gospel writers leave that in there. Or, or when the hero of the story is seen in a garden, sweating drops of blood, beginning to question what he has to do, to create this legendary hero, then take that out. Right? You don't want to portray your hero as, as uh, questioning and weak and struggling, right? but the authors leave that in there. Or what about this? When the gospels say that women were the first witnesses to the empty tomb of Jesus. In ancient times, a woman's eyewitness testimony was worthless. They didn't care what women thought or saw. Right? They didn't take to account the testimony of women in court. And that's messed up. I think we all agree with that, right? And to present a better, more convincing story about the resurrection of Jesus and his empty tomb, it would make more sense to say that men were the first to witness it. That's an easy edit, right? But they don't say that. They leave the culturally counterproductive details in rather than trying to make it sound better and more convincing. Right? Another important detail is that since the New Testament was written so close in time to when the events of the New Testament actually happened, it means that there were people still alive at the time of writing who could testify as eyewitnesses if what was written actually happened or not. Right, so, so when the Gospels say um, Jesus fed 5,000 people, that's not a small number. And that's just men, not including women and children. Or that he sent pigs hurtling over a cliff. Or that he said this or did that. The people in and around the places that those miracles happened, right, or those words were spoken, they could read the Gospels at the time of writing, and they could say, oh, wait a second, that didn't happen. I was there. I saw it. It didn't happen. But that's not what we see in history and scripture. I see, here's a tip. If you're trying to make up a myth or a legend, or you're trying to create a new religion, maybe that's a passion you have. Um, here's a tip, all right? Um, you want to wait until all of the eyewitnesses are dead and gone so that they can't say that never happened, right? Then you can say whatever you want and nobody can refute it. Just a little tip for you, right? But that's not what happens with Scripture Right? They and the witnesses are still alive at the time of writing. Right? And when you read the Gospels, they even write the names of people and places where they lived. 
And the, the, the idea is that if someone was reading the gospel stories shortly after they were written, they could actually go to those places and find those people and say, hey, did this really happen? Right? And presumably, that's what Luke did with his gospel. The very first gospel written is the, the book of Mark. And Luke and Matthew both borrow word-for-word phrases from the book of Mark. And then they add their own perspectives. And so presumably, Mark, or Luke read Mark. He's like, wait, here's names and addresses of people. I'm going to go do my own investigative journaling or journalism and ask them if this really happened. And then he, he does even more, right? And what we see is that if he would have gone to these people, they could have easily said, you know, Mark was actually just a crazy guy. Nobody really believed what he said, and none of these things actually happened. Then we wouldn't have the book of Luke anymore. Right? That's not what we see happen. And so the, the tools and the standards that historians and scholars use to decide if an ancient text is reliable and trustworthy, the Bible meets those standards. Right? And, and listen, this is, chew on this one for a moment, okay? To not accept the Bible's historicity and accuracy it's to not just be a skeptic of the Bible, but a skeptic of history itself. Think about that. Right, you might be thinking, well, that's just the New Testament, Pastor Kai. What about the Old Testament? Man, there's some really messed up stuff in there. I know. I've read it. Right, God's people do all kinds of things that are seemingly just awful and evil. Right, the killing of the Canaanites, polygamy, slavery. Well, how can we trust it then if those things are still in the Bible? Well, if we believe that Jesus was real and that Jesus really is who he says he is, then we have to take into account that Jesus quoted Old Testament scripture all the time. And he said that the Old Testament is authoritative for the life of a believer. Am I saying that Jesus would have condoned those seemingly evil things? No. And neither did God in the Old Testament. Right, when you look at something like polygamy, okay? Most of the kings of Israel and the patriarchs, right, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they all had more than one wife. God never condemns that practice like we would today, but he doesn't condone it either. And sometimes what you see in scripture is that God doesn't outright condemn things in the Old Testament, but he kind of lets the story around these practices speak for themselves. And if you all of the men who had multiple wives, they are not living their best life in those moments. They are having a really hard time. And it's as if God, through the story, is saying, do you really think this multiple wives things is a good idea? Right? Men, you thought having one wife was hard. Imagine multiple. Maybe not here. All of our wives are amazing. Um, there are reasons and there are explanations for these seemingly terrible things that we read about in the Old Testament. And I could spend another hour giving reasons and why we don't necessarily understand the text as well. Right, but we're running out of time. Okay? But here's the reality. We might not ever fully know and understand those reasons and explanations in this life. We do know that if... We believe Jesus is who he says he is and that God is who he says he is, then his ways are truly higher than ours. His understandings of things are truly 
higher than ours. They're, they're beyond our understanding and explanation of things. Now listen, biblical faith is about trusting in and relying on God. What does that mean? Well, it means will you trust him? Right? And listen, God never asks us for certainty. He never asks us for certainty, nor does he give us certainty in all things. He simply asks us to trust him as we follow him. And so the question is, will you trust him and his word, the scriptures? Will you have faith in him and his word? But here's the, the other thing, and I promise we're going to start wrapping up soon. Here's the other thing about scripture that, that many people miss. And it's that scripture isn't meant to just be believed as true. It's also meant to be lived out. It's meant to be lived out. The Bible isn't just a book of information, but it's a book of invitation to live as part of this story that's being told and to see how that story plays out in our own lives. Many people go through life believing or, or trying to believe intellectually that the Bible is true without a shadow of a doubt and that it's the word of God. And it's important for us to use our intellects while reading the scripture. But this intellectual only belief falls short of the true power and purpose of scripture. Right? The intellectual only belief in the Bible, I've seen it before, it causes people to feel like they're missing something. Right? Their minds are being satisfied and stimulated, but what about the rest of their being? And if the Bible is, is the true word of God, inspired by God, then why do I feel like I'm missing something when I read his word? Well, that's because you're only experiencing part of the power and purpose of scripture. Right? Because the Bible isn't just a book of information. It's a book of invitation to live as part of this amazing story that's being told and to see how that story plays out in our own lives. And our understanding and reading of scripture, it has to move from just information to invitation. Do you hear what I'm saying? Right? Or others have said it this way. It's got to move from just the head into the heart in order to experience the full power and purpose of scripture. And so how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, it's pretty when the Bible says to do something, don't just believe it's the good and right thing to do. Do it. Do it. Why? Well, when the, when the Bible says love your neighbor, right, to pray for your enemies, to forgive, to give sacrificially, to honor your mother and father, to teach your children in the ways of the Lord, right, that's God's invitation for you to be a part of the story that is about redeeming and transforming the world. Right? And it's in that space. Listen, I know we got a baby crying, but focus on just a minute. And it's in that space of accepting God's invitation and actually living out what we read in the Bible that we finally experience the full power and purpose of the scriptures. When you look in the, some of the miracles that Jesus performed, it wasn't until the people obeyed what Jesus said that they received their life transformation. And the same is true with scripture. The same is true. Right? It's in that space that people are transformed in mind and spirit and in everyday living. It's in that space that people truly see that the word of God is alive and active. So when it comes to scripture, have you not just received information, but have you 
accepted God's invitation to be a part of this world-transforming and redeeming story that he's telling. It's not just about believing, but living out what we read in Scripture. That's where the power and purpose really is. As Jesus was wrapping up his great sermon on the mount, he said in Matthew 7, 24 and 25, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. So what is your faith founded on? What is your faith standing on this morning? What is the foundation of your faith? What are you reconstructing on? Augustine said, for now, treat the scriptures of God as the face of God, melts in its presence. And that's my challenge to you this morning. Maybe you've had a difficult relationship with scripture. Maybe you've had a difficult relationship with the church or people in the church. My challenge for you this morning is instead of looking at the church or Christians and saying, I'm going to write off Christianity because of them, because of what I've heard, I want to challenge you to read the New Testament for yourself. Stop listening to what other people say about it. Read the entire Bible for yourself. And as you do that, ask the question, do I see God in this? Do I see the story that he's telling? Challenge yourself to read God's word with fresh, uninfluenced, unbiased eyes and ask yourself, what would happen if I not just read this book, but actually lived it out in everyday life? What would happen? What would happen? And the last thing that I'll say about standing on scripture as your foundation, and Stephanie, you can come on up. The last thing I'll say is that ask for the filling of the Holy Spirit every single time you open your Bible to read it. Every single time you open up the book, ask the Holy Spirit to fill you. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And those things freely given us, he's talking about the word of God. He's talking about scripture. He goes on to say in the following verses that we cannot understand God's word without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who illuminates the truth and understanding of scripture to us. So seek and ask for the filling of the Holy Spirit every single time you open up the book to read it. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you when you read the Bible. And Jesus says uh, in the book of John that the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth and he will bring to remembrance the words that he's spoken. We need the Holy Spirit, especially when we read scripture. So what is your faith standing on this morning? At the world's understanding or the word of God? Right? The Bible is trustworthy and reliable for salvation, for spiritual growth and maturity, for knowing who God is, what he's done, what he says about us and how we should live. The tools and standards that historians, secular historians use to evaluate ancient documents, trustworthiness, it shows that the Bible 
is trustworthy. And the Bible isn't just information to believe, but it's an invitation to live as part of this amazing story that's being told. This world transforming story that God is, is, is telling. And so seek the Holy Spirit as you read God's word and he will illuminate the truth and understanding of his word. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you are blessed by this episode and would like to help us create more content that magnifies and multiplies Jesus, would you consider giving a financial gift of any amount today? Whatever you give will go towards building the kingdom of God in the lives of people all over the world. Thank you for your support, and we pray many blessings over you. Thank you.